Hi, I'm Matt Reeves, uh, director of Cloverfield, and today we're going to talk about uh, making the film and uh, what that experience was like. It was very unusual sort of way that it all came together. Um, JJ had this idea. I went to uh, Japan after um, Mission Impossible 3 opening. He went there um, for the premiere with his son Henry, and they uh, they went to a toy store, and there was a um, just display, huge shelf after shelf of Godzilla, and I guess they sort of had this impression of uh, it being the national monster, which Godzilla, I guess, really is for Japan. And um, they thought, well, you know, I think it'd be great if we had our own monster, and that was sort of the genesis of it. And JJ and I have known each other for a long, long time. We actually met his kids making 8 millimeter films, and um, I actually met uh, the other producer of the film, Brian Burke, the same way. And um, JJ and I created Felicity together, and we'd worked together a number of times, always looking for new things to do together. And we'd actually been talking about um, doing a film that I wrote and I'm going to direct, and um, it's sort of more of a of a thriller, but basically a character piece as well. And um, he came to me just excited, talking about how he just got this deal at Paramount to not only write and direct movies, which he was really excited about doing, but also to produce movies. And the one that he was the most excited about was this movie Cloverfield that he felt would be a great way to start his bad robot label. And he was telling me about there was this great writer, Drew Goddard, and um, and how excited he was about this Handycam movie. And then they came to me and said, well, you know, we know you want to make that other movie, but we'd love you to do this movie. And um, I read the outline, which I thought was kind of amazing. And um, I met Drew and uh, met with Brian and JJ, and we just talked about it and... Once I sort of had the sense for what they were interested in, because obviously I'd never done any monster movies, nothing with visual effects, nothing of that nature, but that they were interested in a kind of naturalism, then I got very excited because I thought, well, that sounds fun to do a movie that was so outlandish and crazy, um, but do it in a realistic way. And so that was um, the fun of it from the beginning was always the idea of this handicam aesthetic. And so in the scenes you're watching here... Um, I always thought it would be really important to shoot a significant portion of the movie on Handycam. And so the scenes here, the opening of the film, that shot when he's looking out the window, um, was actually shot on a, a prosumer Handycam. It cost about $1,500. And we thought, wow, this is going to look terrible. And we transferred the footage to film, some of the tests, and they it looked too good. We thought, well, is this going to look better than what people um, think that a Handycam movie should look like? But um, it was... It was a fun part of the movie was that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to give the camera to the actors in places. And so in this first scene, um, I gave the camera to Michael and I said, okay, you need to film this because we're going to see you in reflections. And actually there's a thing coming up here where you'll see him actually reflected in the uh, in the picture right there. Um, and it was just the idea that it should feel authentic. It should feel like, uh, you know, you're watching somebody's found home movies and you're just kind of voyeuristically peering into what's going on with them and um and so that's how it all kind of started so that's that's kind of the aesthetic of the whole thing and we had to find a way to do visual effects and uh make a monster movie but make it feel like it was all filmed from that point of view what do you want to do today if i answer that uh, is this thing on? Look out! Babe, it's not my camera. I don't know if it's the on button or the zoom button. All right, here, here, here. I think I got it. Is this on? Oh, perfect. Now we can have a nice record of you getting run over. Is that funny? <laughs> that first scene was shot in New York. Then we were suddenly on the stage. And here we are, um, actually back in New York again in the hands 
uh, of the camera. I mean, the camera's in the hands of um, of Mike Vogel now instead. And um, it was fun. Like this scene here, this is actually at, at Paramount. Mike had never actually used the camera at all, and so he didn't know how to use it. And um, he said, well, I really don't know how to use this. And I said, well, that's perfect. And so he's sort of playing around with it. Um, these flashbacks here, um, that was one of the things that really excited me about the outline that I uh, read from Drew. Drew had written this very, very extensive outline when I first got involved, and um, they gave me that, and I, I read it, and there was this sort of sense of two stories, one recording over another. And um, when originally it was another kind of story and we talked more about it, and we thought, well, you know, if we want to make this kind of a love story, we could probably start that footage and make you feel like you're starting to be introduced to two lovers and that this movie then that you're watching actually was recorded over that, that somebody didn't realize there was something on the tape and that every now and then there'd be these little sort of snippets where you'd see what was originally on the tape and that we could find a way then by the end of the film to come back to that and that that would give you um, this really interesting resonance where you're watching something and you're watching people in a moment that they have no awareness of what we've just seen. They've not yet lived that. And so there was this weird sort of opportunity to do two parallel stories. And I thought that was sort of ingenious and um, it was a very... Um, smart way to use this idea of, of somebody's handy cam and, and accidental footage. Um, but here, like here, we're, this, this scene here that we shot um, in L.A., the loft, um, basically the camera was, was held all by the actors. Um, and that scene there, you know, it started with Mike Vogel. We handed over the camera to TJ. And from this point forward, the idea is that the movie is essentially filmed um, by TJ. And that was going to be accomplished in a number of ways, which in the party scene is mostly about him doing it. And um, I I really wanted there to be this sense of naturalness. So like at the beginning of these scenes here, when he goes up to Jessica, there was a scene that Drew wrote, which is all of her testimonial and the way that they're talking to each other. But I felt like, well, you know, because we don't want it to feel like a movie where things begin and end in a traditional sense, um, I would have them improv in and out of scenes. So as he goes up to there, TJ, you know, when we were casting, um, one of the things that really struck us about him is that he was very funny and very quick on his feet and could improvise very, very well. And so basically I would have him, you know, once we'd done the scene and rehearsed the scene a few times, um, I would have him sort of throw different lines out and different things out to sort of engage um, the actors and that was sort of part of the fun of the movie. And, and one of the things that we also did um, is that I asked them in rehearsal uh, at the beginning of the movie, I said, you know, the most important thing that you guys can do is hang out and get to know each other, become friends, because that's what this is supposed to be about, a group of friends who know each other. And if we're going to have you guys be sort of um, loose and easy with some of the dialogue in some places just to kind of create that overlapping naturalistic feel, the way that that's going to work best is if you guys really do have a comfortable sense of each other. And so they really did become good friends. And it's interesting because they were they were really thrown into such a strange situation. When we cast the movie, um, Drew was still writing the script. So we didn't have the script. And there was this tremendous secrecy because we didn't want anyone to know we were making a monster movie. And so we had all of these auditions and no script. And people didn't know what they were coming in for. And at the time, um, J.J. had just um, announced that he was doing Star Trek, and there were 
a lot of people who came in who had the feeling that they were probably auditioning for Star Trek. And um, we couldn't even really tell them what the movie was about. So they would come in and read these scenes, some of which were from Alias, some of which were scenes that Drew wrote that would sort of um, give us a feeling, although at that point the characters weren't even in complete sort of solid existence yet. They were still evolving and changing from uh, the previous draft of the outline to sort of the new version of the story. So these guys came in and they didn't know what they were doing, and we ended up casting them, and actually even still at the point at which we cast them, they did not know what film they were in or what they were doing. They only knew that it was being produced by J.J. and that I was directing it and that Brian was producing it. And they were like, what is this Paramount movie? We don't know what it is. They did get a sense that there'd be some improvisation because we were asking them to do that. And that's actually, you know, Lizzie here, she and T.J., they had the reason that we really wanted to cast them is they had such great chemistry. They both made us laugh. And we thought, well, if we're going to do this kind of realistic dire monster movie that there needed to be humor and there needed to be warmth and those characters in the script were intended to be funny and we thought well this will be great because they can bring another sort of level to that because of how good they are together and um, so it was an interesting experience for them because finally after we cast them one by one there was no script and so I essentially had to pitch them the movie that they were in and um, I know Lizzie said to me that because JJ and I had created Felicity together that we, she had the sense that we were probably doing some sort of 20-something, maybe a movie, uh, a handicam movie like, um, because there were handicams that they had to hold in the auditions, that maybe we'd be doing some kind of Cameron Crowe-esque, Felicity, post-college-esque um, relationship movie. And a lot of the scenes that they came into audition with initially were that because we wanted to make sure that they could play the character scenes and play the, the drama of just people relating to each other. But then she started getting scenes of like people getting, you know, uh, one of the scenes was a scene from Elias where there's a, uh, a, a hypodermic uh, syringe is plunged into um, Sydney's heart and they're saving each other's lives and all this craziness. And all the names, of course, had been taken out because we didn't want anyone to feel like they were auditioning for um, alias. And so then Lizzie started saying, well, now I'm really confused. What is this movie? We had them doing, you know, light comedy together, improvising together, doing these sort of more relationship scenes and then doing these kind of crazy scenes. And so um, finally when we cast them, I pitched the movie to them and everybody was sort of stunned. And I think it was actually in a way really great for the movie because it put them all in this same place of unknowing, where they didn't know what to expect, and it very quickly, I think, created a bond be between all of them, because they all realized that they were about to face this great uncertainty together, and that was really, really helpful for creating the relationships in the film. Um, we started the movie, actually, it's interesting, that shot right there is from the trailer, and it's it's an interesting way that we, we shot the movie. We shot this trailer because it was going to be this handheld handicam visual effects movie we shot the trailer um, during our prep and one of the things we learned how to do was how to do visual effects which are generally not done with handheld camera because the tracking is so complex um, and the trailer taught us how to do that and we also wanted to be smart about it because we did have a limited budget and we wanted to be able to use as much of what we'd shot in the movie but the irony was, or the challenge was, that the script wasn't done at that point, too. I mean, you know, uh, Drew was writing madly on the weekends, trying to get 
the script done. And so when we made the trailer, we thought, well, we know what the story is. We know what we're going to do. We know that the sequence with the head of the Statue of Liberty is going to be in this. So that will be kept. But the party scene hadn't been written. And so the fun of it was trying to find a way to shoot some stuff that if it turned out, um, well, we could use in the party, but that we would then essentially be reshooting the party from scratch. And so there's a bunch of stuff, um, little bits here and there, like that shot of Jessica and Michael dancing. Um, and there's the thing of Kelvin Yu saying, um, he's my, uh, what are you going to do? That He's like your main dude. And that stuff's from the trailer before we even had a script. And then we tried to kind of weave that in where we felt it was appropriate, just so um, the movie that people sort of had seen in that teaser trailer was the same movie that uh, they went to see in the theaters. Hey, is everything cool, man? Yeah, everything's cool. Okay, because um, you've been over here kind of... Is that my camera? I don't know, your brother did, you, did, you, did you switch the tape? Because I had a tape in there. I don't know. Was... Coasters are fine, but like any kind of teacupy thing. Tape was in here when I got it. Why? This stuff, that stuff was really fun to shoot. We went to um, New York and we had this really minimal crew, and we were going to go to Coney Island. We actually shot the end of the movie, or what ended up being the end of the movie first, even though um, time wise it took place before most of what you're watching because that's the night of Rob's going away party. And so this kind of very small unit went to New York in prep and we were going to end up at Coney Island and shoot the day there. And we said, well, when we're going there, why don't we go there on the train? Because that's how they would get there and we'd be able to use that footage as this kind of flashback stuff to to kind of connect you to the relationship that Rob and Beth have since in most of the movie, Rob ends up going to get Beth and they're separated after this party, after they have this big fight and we wanted to have a sense of their chemistry and how you could tell that they actually um, have a kind of warmth for each other and care about each other. And so we went on the subway and we brought a bunch of crew members so that they could block um, anybody on the subway that would be um, not able to be seen and we just went there, and I, I gave the camera to, to Michael, and I said, um, let's just play. Let's just do some stuff. And, um, and we, got, we had hours of footage of them on the subway going out, um, and it was, it was really fun to shoot because here we were making this, this studio film, this Paramount movie, and we were doing it on this tiny handy cam, and it was completely guerrilla. So that part of it um, was very exciting. It was, it was a really fun way to be shooting that kind of movie, and it, it, it infused the movie with a lot of energy to be able to um, have so many people just pick up the camera and be involved. Um, it gave this kind of um, haphazardness. You know, a lot of the time that we spent working with, you know, we had great camera operators, and they were all so professional that a lot of the time that we spent, we said, well, you know, you really have to find a way to get you to shoot this not so well. Um, you know, they're used to having the camera in the, ca in the right place to see the right action. And we needed a bit of that. You want to see the head of the Statue of Liberty, but you don't want to see it exactly at the moment of impact or this and that because you want it to feel like somebody who's in this situation, who would be scared out of their mind, was filming it. And so it's all meant to feel very consumer-like. And when we were preparing the film, I spent a lot of time watching a lot of YouTube 
um, and a lot of footage of... It's interesting, there was a party in particular that was online that very much informed our party scene, and it had um, it had a kind of vibe that was, you know, very sort of haphazard and a, a sense of just a, a camaraderie, a group of friends who all knew each other really well, and there was something that was very much like the thing um, where... Kelvin Yu is saying, hey, he's like your main dude. It wasn't that. It was something like it. But all of that, we thought, wow, that we really have to borrow from that. We have to... Um, and what we have to borrow is the sense of um, of unplannedness, a kind of spontaneous, um, unrehearsed kind of thing. And yet, at the same time, we had this story to tell. So we had to find a way to meld those two aesthetics to make um, a kind of very worked-out story that we'd done feel like you just were capturing it um, through accident and that there'd be little holes in the story that you'd have to fill in after the fact because you were watching a movie that was not professionally done and that you were just happening to capture important moments um, that happened to be caught on film, but there are other ones that must not have been caught on film. And so how does that story fit together? Um, and so that was that was really uh, an exciting part of both, you know, watching the script developed and, and then also um, as we were shooting it trying to find a way to do things that was very different. You know, in Felicity, obviously we did um, a lot of party scenes, a lot of relationship scenes, a lot of scenes like this scene here, you know, on the fire escape, people talking about their relationship struggles. But they were all done in the very kind of, they were very point of view driven. You know, Felicity's stories kind of drove you through in a cinematic way that were very much from her point of view, but they were shot in traditional ways. They were shot with, you know, master shots and reverses and close-ups and, and here, um, we had to find a way to not do that. And so we'd go into the scene with a scene that you just watched, and I'd have, you know, TJ take the camera, and instead of shooting over the course of an hour multiple um, takes and different angles, um, I would have them shoot the same angle maybe 50, 60 times. We'd still spend an hour on the set shooting, but we would just keep shooting and watching the scene evolve. And that was exciting because we got to, you know, let things happen. And it was a very unusual way for, for us to be working. You know, Mike Bonville and the DP had never obviously shot anything like that. I'd never done that. The When the camera operators were operating, they had never done anything like that. I had to talk to the camera operators and get them not to get things um, so sharply in focus. It's the kind of thing that a camera operator would normally get fired for. And in the case of our movie, because a handycam would be on autofocus and it'd be in and out of focus and um, it would have a kind of rawness to it, we had to get these experts to sort of let go of all of their expertise and use that kind of skill to catch just the things that we needed in focus but have other stuff and throw it out of focus. Um, and conversely, there were other moments where I specifically asked Mike because he was very aware. He was like, "Oh God, if we put on the, um, if we put on the the, the autofocus, it's going to be um, iffy. Who knows what will be in focus and what won't?" And I said, "Well, you know what we need to do in the movie is we have to have some moments that are really, really sort of amateurishly filmed, and so we should do some moments where we have autofocus on. And so we did some scenes, and the camera will go sort of in out of focus in this kind of." Um, cheesy, cheap way, and that's because we put the camera on autofocus, and I felt like if we had enough of that in the film, then you would question it less, because you'd see those moments, and then um, and then we'd try for our own moments that were like that. Um, this was also actually something that we shot when we shot the teaser trailer, this scene here up on the roof, um, which we shot in lower Manhattan, and uh, you know, it's it's just a strange way to shoot something. There was no script at this point here. They were relating to each other as friends, and that's all we really knew, that they, that they were friends, and that this incident was happening, that there was this explosion. And um, 
And so it was a, a very um, untraditional way of, of doing something. Here we had a stuntman throw himself down with the handicam and then had uh, Michael Stahl David go and try and help him up. Um, and we just wanted to try and do things like that. Um, and here we suddenly were back at the Paramount backlot. And so we went from authentic New York um, locations and then we're here on the, uh, on the set. And the idea is that once from that cut forward um, that you just saw, the idea for this sequence was to have no cuts um, until really the sequence is over. And the reason for that was that I felt, although we had the luxury of being able to do random cuts um, so that you could jump forward and backward the way people self-edit, I felt like if something were happening that was so dramatic that the person filming, in this case um, HUD, um, wouldn't turn off the camera, then we shouldn't. And so it posed some challenges for the visual effects people and for, for us because we had limited resources for numbers of extras and for different locations and how to bridge things. And so we work with the previs people to sort of design these long, continuous takes. And then we look for places to hide cuts. Um, and some of them were in obvious places when the camera would kind of whip around. Um, that's a cut right there. Um, and, you know, some of them would be in, in, in really surprisingly subtle places. You know, what, what, what I kind of learned on the trailer was that if you shoot a sequence and you're shooting this sequence of shots and you're shooting it again and again and again and the people are in generally the same place and it's handheld and the camera kind of moves in a similar dance that you can then actually get easily in and out in some cases of those different takes. And I thought, oh, this is a lifesaver because we can get some of this stuff in one take but then there are other shots that if I like the performance in one take and then the rest of a performance in another, which is the way you'd normally be able to do a movie when you can cut to somebody's close-up, cut to something else, and then cut back to another take of that close-up using the best moments of somebody's performance. In our case, finding out that there was a way to actually bridge shots without it looking like you were bridging shots was like a huge life raft for me because I was so used to being able... When I shoot... I like to go out and do what I call the hunting and gathering period of shooting, which is that you go out and you play with the actors and you explore a number of different things. And then when you start to edit it together, you kind of create this emotional path to understand the way that things should feel. And that option of doing that seemed like it might not be there for us because we weren't going to be able to edit in the traditional way. But once we realized that we could bridge different takes together... Um, it opened all kinds of possibilities and then made the idea of when we were doing everything in one take really fun and exciting. Um, and, you know, Kevin Stitt, our editor, I remember specifically when we hired him, I said, you know, here's the challenge. We're going to be doing these things with these oneers. And this is, this is now at the end of this whole sequence here. This is all the end of that one shot, and I don't know how long it is. I think it's about three minutes. And there are several of them in the film, what I would consider these kind of oneer set pieces. There's this one. Um, there's a certain point on the Brooklyn Bridge at which he wouldn't really turn off the camera for a while, which is shorter. Um, the electronic store, which is actually quite a long one. Um, and then obviously when they're running and they get caught in the crossfire, that's a very kinetic, um, shorter one. But the idea was to try and create the illusion that these were done um, in one continuous piece. And so anyway, as I was um, looking for an editor and we talked to Kevin, we said, you know, one of the challenges um, is going to be to find a way to 
take different takes and you got to help us. you got to find a way to put them together. And he said, oh, well, you know, that's, I, I love doing that kind of thing. And, um, and so there were the ones that we'd planned and the fun of putting the movie together with Kevin in post was that I knew where we could do it based on sort of moves and the way that I'd choreographed it. But he found ways to put cuts in that were truly hidden that I, that, were shocking. I was like, oh, that, there was a cut in there? And he said yes. And that kind of stuff was really uh, important for being able to pull off a movie with this aesthetic and still be able to explore performances with these actors and, and to try and um, shoot it in that sense, in, in as traditional a style as you could, meaning that you'd be able to use different takes, different uh, different performance moments, because that's really what an actor does, is they they watch you, you know, they let you watch them sort of performing and they give you lots of different sort of interpretations and choices and you guys kind of go on this search together. And the scary thing about this movie was would we be able to get the best moments out of everything that they'd done and put it together? And um, we were really fortunate that we found ways to do it. But again, the movie was one sort of big experiment. And here we went, we're jumping right back. This actually is in New York. And the thing about the movie was when I first got involved, you know, because JJ's JJ's amazing. He has like a, he just his mind works very very quickly, and he's very improv, very improvisatory, and he he loves to sort of do things on the fly. And his whole idea was, you know, I bet we could go with no crew, and you could go to New York just for like a couple nights, and sort of grab, you know, these shots, and it would feel like it was in New York, even though we'll shoot it in LA and all this stuff. And I was I was terrified. I thought, well, how are we going to do that? Because there needs to be destruction. And what was amazing is that when um, our producers, um, Guy and, and Udi, um, they started sort of breaking things down, they found a way for us to get what was supposed to initially be about probably two days of a very small unit. And they ended up finding a way to give us a week in New York. And so we had, knowing that the movie was going to be this movie that was supposed to take place all on the streets of New York in one night, we thought, okay, so every key sort of spot, we're going to find a way to get something important in New York. So this Brooklyn Bridge footage, this actually is the Brooklyn Bridge. And so we, we took the cameras out there. And knowing that, then we have to find a way to get into this footage, which we shot in Downey, which was all green screen, which actually happens right on this cut right here. Now we're in total green screen world. And we just felt like if we could go through and get enough of stuff that was very, very authentically New York, that you would stop questioning. And I'm hoping and we feel that we actually did kind of pull that off. But again, very, very difficult to do on a budget that we had and in the kind of time frame that we had. We shot the movie very quickly. We shot the movie in about 35, 36 days. And for a movie like that with this much sort of level of visual effects and all this kind of stuff and, and handheld and um, all that stuff, it's very quick. Um, and actually, one of the reasons we were able to do it was because of this handheld style. And I think it was part of the conception that J.J. had when he said, well, you could do a handheld thing. And I think he was thinking, well, you can do lots of jump cuts. You can skip the, the stuff that you don't need to see. And then we can really find a way with some great visual effects to see the stuff that you need to see. And so that was part of, that was sort of built into the idea that you could shoot some grand scale stuff, but do it in a way that would actually take much less time and money than it might on a traditional movie that had this story, you know, the the, the sort of um, Independence Day version of this story, the Roland Emmerich-sized movie. Um, but the other thing that I found when we were shooting 
like let's say the crossfire sequence, is that by having only one angle, it, it necessitated a certain level of choreography that you had to build. We had to work out exactly where the camera was, where the actors were, and find where all the invisible cuts would go. But then at the end of the day, it also was the thing that enabled us to shoot that sequence, which would normally probably take at least a week, and we could do it in two nights with no overtime. And it was very important that we had very little overtime on the, on the movie because we would have gone over budget. Um, and so because we didn't have to get all the various angles, because it was supposedly one angle, when you went in there and once the choreography was done and once you shot all those angles, you were done. There was no, okay, let's try this in the big wide shot. Okay, now let's get the, the, the six close-ups. Let's get you know all those little extreme close-ups of the bullets and the feet and all of the things that you would do in a traditionally designed action sequence. And so the thing that was the challenge for us, which was finding a way to shoot things in these kind of wonders, was also the thing that made the movie possible. Um, and so it was, it was an unusual experience. That moment right there is interesting because we went on the bridge and we didn't know what we were going to be able to do. Oh, wait, I want to talk about this one thing, which is that in this scene, you'll see Mike Bonvillain falls <laughs> and gets back up. And I, I remember, you know, that was the thing is that we were constantly sort of handing the camera to each other and our camera operators were getting in there and running around. And when things would happen that were accidents, we always prized them and tried to keep them because I felt like that was the stuff that would make it feel like anybody in the audience watching this could have made this movie. If you were running down the street and there were people running all around you, you might fall and you might get up. And in that moment, my heart sank because we weren't done shooting the movie, obviously. We had major sequences left to do. And my director of photography is saying to me, I want to shoot this shot. And I said, absolutely. And he's running with a crowd. And I watch as, as he's running with a crowd, watching my director of photography take a huge tumble. And I'm thinking, oh, there goes the rest of the movie. And then before I could even have my heart completely sink, he got right back up and continued running. And I said, that was amazing. And he said, yeah, it must have been the adrenaline. And certainly he, um, he, did, he didn't get badly hurt, but he could have been. And um, actually, you know, we, we did have some people, you know, fall and get hurt, some of the camera operators. And it was, it was a grueling, grueling shoot. Um, and that was, but that was the thing is that whenever those kind of accidents would happen, I, I felt a kind of imperative to use them because um, I felt like, well, that makes it messier, and you can't really plan that. We can't really plan for the, for the cameraman to fall in the middle of that like that. And uh, so it would all make it feel more real. Um, but that transition, anyway, from the bridge, what was interesting there is we were on the bridge, and we're transitioning within one shot between green screen and actual Brooklyn Bridge. And we didn't even know before we were going to New York that we would do that. But then when we went to New York, we found that we were able to, with this camera, the F-23, get so much exposure um, that we were actually able to use that footage in a way that was much more significant and would sell the bridge in a bigger way than we even thought we'd be able to pull off. I, I think when we first started, I know I was talking to Martin Whist, who is our great production designer, and he had no idea how we were going to do it. And Kevin Blank was saying, oh, I think we'll do it. I mean, I, I just remember I'd never done visual effects. And... These guys were sort of, sort of trying to speculate, how will we do this handheld major sequence on the Brooklyn Bridge? And then they came up with the idea of doing it all sort of in this green screen surround. And, um, and then the idea of shooting the real footage and bridging into that um, was, I think, what sells the sequence. Um, and then this footage, once we're running down sort of off the bridge, once they go under that, that area, under the bridge, which is, of course, in New York, then suddenly this is actually downtown L.A. And uh, we got... You know, I remember actually the story there when we were down there, there were some very excited people because there's a kind of 
um, sort of renaissance in downtown LA, a lot of people moving down there and a lot of lofts and um, and there was a a lot of excitement that a Sephora was opening across the street. They felt like, oh, the, the, the downtown LA revival has really hit its peak. There's a Sephora opening. And um, I didn't have the heart to tell those people that it would not be there the next day. But we had a vacant building there that we needed to uh, to fill in some way, and I wanted it to feel like real stuff. And Martin um, was able to get Sephora to give us stuff to dress a store to make it look like a real store in New York. And so we did that. But this stuff actually was all shot in downtown LA. And this is a real this is a real electronic store in downtown LA. And um, but this is the other really long oneer in the movie. I never timed it. I don't know how long it is, but I remember shooting this in in multiple multiple pieces. And TJ shot a bunch of this, but then we also had stuff that was was visual effects, and so we needed that to be shot with um, the Viper Cam, which is a uh, it's actually a very very high resolution, high quality digital camera. Uh, David Fincher used the camera on um, on Zodiac, and it's been used for for a lot of. I think Miami Vice used the camera as well, and so that from the beginning was how do we find a way to, to kind of do a handycam movie, but then get visual effects. And the key was to shoot it on those digital cameras. And um, we were actually very fortunate at the beginning of the whole shoot to get to sit down with David Fincher, and he told us about sort of all the different things to watch out for with the Viper and um, and the F twenty three, which we shot on as well, and. That was a that was sort of an exciting moment for me to just sort of sit there with Mike Bonvillain and Brian Burke was there and we just sort of got to see his whole system and how it all worked and we kind of looked at it and drooled a bit and thought wow you know on a, on a movie of another budget we'd uh, we'd be able to do a lot of these things that he's doing but um, we'll just take the little bits of what he's saying and go out and make our handy cam version of of our monster movie um, now we're back in New York again and. That's that was these were the key things that we thought would sell that we were in New York is just um, to have these transitional pieces when they're on the streets as much as possible be in New York. This was New York too. That's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody involved. Listen, you can't talk me out of it. Okay, look at me. This is not me crazy. All right, I know what I'm doing. You can't talk me out of it. So turn around. I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming with you. Really, you don't have to do that. No, I want to. Just... I'm coming. Guys, did you not hear her message? I mean, even if we get to Beth's, there's a chance that she's already... Gonna... Shut up. Guys, this is insane. Rob! You know what I'm talking about, right? Rob! 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 And this, this scene here, you know, we shot, this was actually one of, I think it actually was the very last thing we shot. Um, and this was shot in downtown L.A. And, you know, we had our cut of the movie, and J.J., was adamant that he said, you know, it'd be great if they ran into somebody who was having a hard night and you got this sense that they weren't the only ones going through trauma. And Drew came up with the idea that the guy would speak Russian and you couldn't even understand what he was saying and it would be sort of haunting. And we shot it and then we showed it to people and people really responded to that. So JJ was absolutely right that the idea of um, sort of having this other layer, which is that these guys are making a movie, um, but there are these other sort of nights out, you know, the other sort of evenings that are being had out there by these other people trying to survive. And that was sort of the idea for the outside the Brooklyn Bridge, um, not the Brooklyn Bridge, I'm sorry. That was the idea sort of for outside of uh, the bodega when they're looking at the head of the Statue of Liberty, that these people would be pulling out their their video phones and their, uh, their handy cams and taking pictures and documenting this because we wanted that to sort of imply that there are probably, you know, 
dozens, hundreds, thousands of other movies of this very same incident that are out there and that what you're watching is just one of them. Um, this sequence is the other kind of um, crazy one sequence that was uh, a challenge for us to shoot, but fun. But its, it's inspiration was actually um, much more modest. I, you know, we had to find a way, you know, Drew had in the outline that they were um, above ground and that they were on their way sort of in one place and that the monster drives them underground. And we needed to find a way sort of at that point what seemed to be cheaply to get them underground, um, and we needed something that was sort of big and major. And um, I had seen this footage online, which um, was of basically troops in Iraq, um, and they were being bombed. And the footage was incredibly obscure, but absolutely terrifying. They were, you could hear the bombs getting closer, and these guys were screaming in the tent, and you actually saw the leg of this table they were hiding under. And it was very visceral and really frightening, and nothing happened to these guys, but this footage was posted and had a tremendous drama to it. And I remember thinking, well, if we can find a way to have our guys go through that kind of terror, and we end up not even being able to see it because we're hiding under a car just trying to survive, then that might be both dramatically effective and also cost-effective to get us underground. But once that sequence was written, of course, Drew wrote the first draft of the sequence, and it ended up being much bigger than what we described. And I was like, oh, Drew, I don't know if we're going to be able to afford this. And then um, Guy, Guy Rydell and Udi started coming to me, and they started saying, well, you want tanks? We can give you tanks. And I'm thinking, well, we don't have the money for tanks, do we? They go, ah, oh, get you tanks. And they got us tanks, and they got us troops. And suddenly what was supposed to be this tiny sequence, which was just transitional and was meant to be somewhat obscure, was one of the biggest uh, sequences of the movie. And and it was, a, you know, it was a ball to shoot. It's interesting here because people think that that's on the streets of New York, but that's the Warner Brothers back lot. And they run around the corner once they see the monster, and the camera transitions into a stairwell that was because there was no stairwell there to get down into the subway. And that was them running down into a stairwell from a different shot that we bridged into from a stairwell that actually wasn't still wasn't in New York, although we had when we went to New York, we sort of scouted and we said, well, should we shoot this stairwell here? And it seemed like such a short shot. Didn't make any sense. But there was one at Paramount outside where the bodega scene was shot. So one night at the end of all the bodega stuff with the head of the Statue of Liberty, we're like, OK, let's get them running down the stairs and then we'll use that later. We hadn't even shot the sequence with the with the troops in the crossfire. And then once they got down there, then Martin Whist built this transition, which is basically what you're seeing here in this, um, in this, it's basically a loading dock in San Pedro. And it looks very much like this, except Martin really, really smartly um, added, you know, obviously they painted, but he added all the turnstiles and added all the stuff. I mean, he, he did just, with what little money he had, he did just what he needed to make this. He put the subway tile, all the stuff. We put a level of stairs and we connected in. So what looks in the movie like you're in New York is actually none of it is in New York. And it looks like it's one location and one sort of continuous shot, and it's like four locations. So that was part of the challenge of the movie was to figure out how on a low budget with a tight schedule to realize these sequences and do it in this kind of creative style. And again, the Handicam thing was a big part of what enabled us to do that. Um, when we were making, you know, do, working on the pre-production of the film, I remember Drew came to me and he said, you know, you should really watch Children of Men, which I hadn't seen yet. And I watched it and I was really taken with the film. I thought it was so effective and really haunting. But um, we 
wanted to watch it, you know, he suggested that I watch it because there was a kind of realism to it. And the thing about it that struck me were those long, continuous takes and that they had such momentum that built kind of dread and tension. And I really felt like that was very applicable to the film, that we'd have a lot of kind of chaotic jump cuts and stuff and that that would have its own kind of energy, but that I wanted there to be long, slow kind of building dread in places and that the way to do that was by having shots that played out over a long period of time. But the fun of ours was that I thought, wow, what's amazing about what they did in Children of Man is that those shots are handheld and they're in the middle of all the chaos, but the camera itself, um, although it's in the middle of the action, is detached from the action. It's still kind of the eye of God. You're, they're, you're, they're not, the camera's not in any danger. You don't think, oh, did the cameraman get hurt? But the fun of our crazy Handicam movie was knowing that we'd be doing sequences of these long takes, but that part of the way the shot would be shot would be informed by the fact that the cameraman is in the middle of all this and just trying to survive himself and that the camera might sort of fall down or point down at his feet or swing up and kind of miss the major part of the action that was happening. Um, and that had its own kind of energy. And I thought, well, even though we're kind of borrowing these long takes, which of course were, you know, there's many precedents for it, you know, all the way back to sort of rope and all the Hitchcock stuff that he did, that that I thought, well, this will still be kind of our own version of that. And um, it was... That was really fun. That was really fun to do. And here too, in the original sort of conception of the of the story that I read in that outline, there was this whole sequence that was down in the tunnels. And it was, you know, there, what could be scarier than being in complete darkness? Um, and then to sort of have to have them travel in this creepy, eerie space. And we had these great sound designers and... Um, the Doug and Will, the Doug Murray and Will Files, and um, they're from Skywalker Sound. And I remember saying to them, you know, well, we just need something really eerie here. And Doug actually had um, had done some David Lynch films. And I thought, oh, there's nothing scarier than some of those Lynchian drones. And so they pulled up some really frightening drones for us and um, made some really creepy sound. Um, and it's funny because the space itself actually was not all that scary. This is all still one very limited section of track that we had at um, at the uh, at the loading dock in San Pedro and we basically had these lights that are up on the ceiling that were moved to different positions and for all of these scenes they kept walking you know we'd walk a few directions uh, we walk a few takes in one direction and then turn around and go the other direction for the other scenes and this was all to create the illusion that somehow they would let us shoot um, in the subways of New York which apparently they might have done but we never would have had the time to do what we had to do there because we had these dramatic scenes like the scenes at the subway platform as well, which we could have done in New York, but we would have had to do it in between train cars. And I knew that Michael would be doing an emotional scene and I wanted to be able to give him the space and time to do that. And so we shot all of this stuff in this crazy little uh, loading dock in San Pedro. And, you know, I think we, we lucked out that we found such a peculiar location that worked so well for our purposes. Right. I just can't stop thinking how scary it would be if a flaming homeless guy came oh, out of the dark right now. That is one of my favorite lines from Mr. Goddard from Drew about a flaming homeless guy. Um, Let's just keep moving. Holy shit! Oh, God, this is nasty. And this was fun, too, because we had... Um, Real rats. I'm, I, I was told at the time that these were the best rats in the business. 
that they were uh, the pirates of the Caribbean rats. And so we had first-class rats, and um, I was really worried about it when we were shooting because I thought, my God, what are we going to do? We're going to be sitting there trying to get rats to do things. But amazingly, um, they were able to get them to do it because they were the best rats in the business. And um, I'd never worked with animals at all, and I was just worried that we'd spend all day on a very tight schedule trying to get rats to run around their feet, and they did. And then when um, we got into post, um, there was an angle where the camera kind of turned around and you saw this sort of dark space, um, and there were no rats in that shot. And the intention was never to do that, but actually the sequence when um, Kevin Stitt had cut it together had all of these, he would wrote on the screen, you know, rats here. And when that happened, um, suddenly it seemed like, oh, that will be absolutely terrifying. So that was actually Kevin's idea to do that. This sequence was was actually a lot of fun to film. I mean, they were kicking at nothing. I had these uh, puppets made that I thought they'd be able to hit and react to and that it'd be really terrifying, and it uh, was a complete bust. It didn't work. It was that they, they built these beautiful puppets, but it just didn't seem real when we were hitting it against the camera. And so all of this was completely pantomimed. And at the beginning there, you see actually Michael Stahl David falls. And as we were shooting each piece of this, once he fell, I was like, oh, we have to find a way to keep that. And Mike loved that idea because he was completely behind the idea of making Rob as sort of unheroic a hero as possible, making him be like one of the members of the audience. And so every time he'd fall or every time there was something kind of um, goofy and not heroic that he would do in the course of trying to be heroic, um, we would keep it. And that was that was really fun. I mean, uh, Mike is actually, uh, a, a, I would say, much more um, confident and more of a sort of, um, uh, I don't know, risk taker than Rob is in the movie. And he had a lot of fun sort of playing him as being um, sort of frightened of these events because they, they are terrifying. And it was just fun to think of somebody um, going through these heroic things who felt more like uh, somebody in the audience, or at least someone in the audience that was like me, who was uh, afraid of everything, like me or Drew or JJ or Brian. Um, that was that was a really fun part of it. Did it get you hurt? Did it bite you, man? No, it didn't get me. Okay. Hey. Hey. So those things came out of nowhere, right? Yeah. Oh, man. The parasites were designed by Neville Page, and they were, I mean, that was that was a process. Actually, was one of the first people that J.J. Uh, hired. You know, long before I was involved, there was uh, Neville, like, coming up with these amazing drawings of the monster and, and, and of the parasites. And... Um, I remember going into his office and looking on the wall, and he had all of these little pictures up. And they were, it was the kind of thing where you're like, oh, what's, what are all those colorful pictures on the wall? And then you'd look, and you'd realize that one was like intestines, and one was something else that was just, you know, like a, the eye of some animal and that was, had been removed from the animal. And it was, these were all reference drawings for him, and it was like his wall of terror. And um, so he, he came up with some truly terrifying, I think, Designs. I, I think those parasites are are kind of amazing. Marlena's hurt pretty bad. You know. Well, we could wait here for a little bit, I guess, and just hope those things will make it through the door. Yeah. Okay. What's the next option? Okay. We could. And the fun of working with these guys, with the with the cast, you know, they were all so gung ho to try and, um, you know, they're 
they were also going hard to, to, to sort of figure out um, what it might feel like to, to go through an evening like this. And, um, you know, we, because they were up for sort of playing and improvisation, we'd shoot, you know, these scenes and, um, and do them exactly as scripted. But then, you know, we might try just a couple of other things, and there would be times when Michael would come to me and say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm not quite sure that I would do that, and I wanted to allow for them to be, for there to be some moments where he, I, you know, in most cases it was about being more of a chicken than, um, than the story had even originally called for, because he said, you know, this is terrifying, and I would say, well, you're right, let's try it, and it was fun. Um, this, I always thought, was something we were never going to be able to pull off. It was in the original, again, in the original outline, which was that they come out from the um, the the uh, the tunnels come up through the subway platform and go right into a department store, which actually you can do in New York. And I I thought, well, we'll never get that location. So how are we going to do that? And that previous set that you had that you saw back there, which um, was was actually um, built to look like this, so that it would match in. But this actually is the subway platform in New York, which amazingly um, we were able to get one night um, and and shoot and then actually do our transition into the department store. And I think that one of the things that was so effective about what Mike Bonvillain did was lighting these environments in a way that was very consistent so that there were certain looks that bridged you from sort of one place to another. And and that was the other thing that, that Martin Whist really, really concentrated on, where the transitions visually in the story, how to take you from one location that literally was 3,000 miles away and make it feel like we were in the other um, space and find those kind of overlaps. And that was the way to do the movie for the price that we had because we didn't have the resources to build a lot of big sets or to take over um, sort of different like department stores for, you know, working department stores that were connected to actual subways in New York for any kind of extended period of time. That would cost way, way more than we had. And everybody was so creative in figuring out the way to do that. And, and that was, again, part of the exciting fun. You know, I, you know, uh, Mike Bonvillain and I have worked, you know, a lot with J.J., and one of the things that we were talking about, this whole movie is sort of um, what, what Bonvillain ref- refers to as um, J.J.'s ball of yarn theory, which is that, you know, having, you know, he did the pilot to Alias. And if J.J., you know, J.J. can do something the, the expensive way if he's doing some, you know, movie like MI3, but he loves actually the challenge of doing it the kind of, um, the sort of sleight of hand way. And so Mike's joke was always, um, he would say, well, yeah, sure, we have this here, but why do that? We can do it with a ball of yarn. We can make the whole movie with a ball of yarn. And in a weird way, this movie is the ball of yarn movie. Um, it's very much a J.J. Uh, sort of aesthetic to to enjoy the challenge of doing something in a, a kind of um, sort of more magic-based way, a little sleight of hand, look to the left when something's going on on the right and um, and do it with a ball of yarn. Please listen to me. Let go. Just listen for a second, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Goddamn camera. We've been trying to get to our own way. I am not jeopardizing this operation or my men. You are getting on that chopper now. One second, please. You have no idea what's out there. I don't care what's out there. Listen to me. She's dying. There is nothing I can do about that now. She should have been with me tonight, and I let her go. And. And I get it, okay? You have your hands full, I get that, I get that, but we're gonna go after her, and if you wanna stop me, then you can have a shoot. Hun, I don't feel so good. Shit. Bite! I can remember this scene in particular. 
when uh, JJ and Drew and I were sitting down and talking about the sort of new trajectory of the of the outline, exactly how sort of things would happen, and they were always from the outline that I read from the beginning that they showed me, we're going to end up in this department store. Um, but it used to be this kind of transitional thing, and it actually happened much, much earlier in the story originally. Um, and when it became this sort of late point, um, I think it was J.J. who came up with the idea that Marlena would actually explode. And uh, there was a lot of excitement in the room as we realized that something absolutely horrific could occur in this spot, that it wasn't just this transitional sort of moment, but actually ended up being this truly horrifying moment and that, you know, yet another one of our gang um, had had gone down, that one by one these people were sort of um, being taken away from us and, and that the whole movie then ends up being this kind of... Um, I guess a metaphor for priorities, the idea of there being this sort of um, experience that these guys go through that, you know, earlier in the night there are a bunch of 20-somethings at a party and they don't really have any cares beyond the kind of uh, relationship cares we might have done on Felicity, something like that, something about, um, you know, who who's in love with whom and, you know, why aren't you, you know, with her? And that then something when something of this scale hits, that suddenly your priorities shift and you're forced to take something that is sort of buzzing around in the background and bring it to the forefront, which is who's important to you, what's important to you. And the idea that Rob had um, had sort of blown it with, uh, with Beth, who he had tremendous feeling for, and that he couldn't live with himself if he didn't make some attempt to reach out to her, to, to, to get her, and that this event would... Um, would sort of call that to his mind and force him to deal with the things that he was too afraid to deal with. And, you know, in, in that way, I think that the movie, you know, from the beginning, a lot of people were saying, well, is the movie, does it have this kind of like 9-11 um, sort of uh, angle to it? And in a certain sense, um, I think we were always aware that it did in that we felt like it was a way of dealing with um, the anxieties of our time in the same way that Godzilla was, you know, genre movies, I think, hold that sort of spot in, in film and in that they, they deal with um, very real anxieties that people have. That's why they're effective. And Godzilla sort of uh, came out of the whole uh, A-bomb uh, sort of nightmare for Japan and the idea of this sort of unfathomable, uh, terrifying um, force and that sort of destructive thing and, and that all the anxiety that came out of this sort of uh, atomic and nuclear age. And so those monsters spoke to everyone because everyone was afraid of ultimate destruction of forces that couldn't be controlled. And so we were definitely aware of the way in which the monster was a metaphor in a certain way um, for our times because those are the anxieties of our time. And so that was always the entry point of the movie. But then we felt that once you sort of call up those feelings, you know, I think genre films enable you to sort of um, basically in a safe environment approach those feelings and to, um, and to experience them, but in the safety of knowing that ultimately it's a giant monster movie. And so that's sort of the point of entry for our movie. It's the, it's the thing that it sort of evokes. But then once you're in the movie and once it's revealed it's a monster, it sort of becomes its own crazy ride. And, and so, you know, we were always aware of that. But I think the thing that, you know, when Drew and JJ and I were talking that was interesting to us story-wise was the way in which when experiences, 
like this occur, when you go through this, that it does immediately call into question the priorities in your life. And that that kind of focused the whole story for us, the idea of how this would really focus for Rob uh, the journey of the story. And, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, speculate on whether or not they live or die at the end of the movie. And I think the thing that we all talked about that we thought was interesting was the idea that, well, it's sort of not the point. That if the if there is meaning derived from the fact that he lets her know how he feels for her and he makes an effort to, to get to her, that them being together in that last moment and them finally getting to say, I love you, is really sort of the point. And, and what could be more romantic than that and what could be more life-affirming? And so, you know, our thought was never, okay, well, they get decimated, but it was, well, maybe they get decimated, but the point is that they are together and that that is as life-affirming uh, a message as you could have in this crazy monster movie where there were no solutions and where you didn't even really know what it was. This here is, is multiple locations. We shot in downtown L.A. We walked up this stairwell, and then we came out into this hallway here, and there's a tradition. this is a transition here into a, a real apartment, which Martin added all this destruction to. And then when we go and we pan down into the debris, um, Double Negative gave us this great transition right into our set. And this was one of the few big sets that we had the resources to build, um, and this and Beth's apartment. And so when we were down in Downey, we had our rooftop and we had uh, Beth's canted apartment. And originally we ended up cutting this and Brian Burke, because we didn't have the money, and Brian Burke came up with the idea that um, the way we'd get from them crossing the, the roof, which we didn't think we'd be able to do, um, was that HUD would turn the camera on himself and say, well, if this is the last thing you see, it means I died, which we all thought was really funny. And so um, we, we did it, and then it turned out we did have the resources to build the roof. Somehow um, they had worked it out, the producers had worked it out, and Martin had worked it out that they could afford to do it. And so we were able to have them cry, uh, climb across, but we decided we'd keep the line anyway because uh, we loved the idea that Brian had come up with. And here originally the, um, the, the set itself was meant to just be an extension, and when we got into post, I looked at it and I thought, well, for this to work, it, we can't just see building on left to the right. We have to see as sheer a drop as possible on the right so that they feel like they're way high up, and then we need on the left for there to be danger. And so I talked to Mike Ellis at uh, Double Negative, and I said, guys, we got to figure out some way to make this a more frightening space. And if, you know, initially they were supposed to build out the building, this was just supposed to be the center of it, and they said, oh, okay, well, why don't we make destruction in the building on the left? And then we'll have a sheer drop on the right. And they used photography that they had in New York for that at Columbus Circle. And they created uh, a, a great space with that. Now, this was the set that, that Martin built that actually made everyone really ill. And the, it just actually was canted. And, and around this area right here, it made you really nauseous. Um, and I always felt like we hadn't quite captured it. I look at this, and I think people probably think we just tipped the camera. But the set was actually tipped. Um, and the fun here, you know, again there, and trying to have the unheroic hero, was that we had um, Michael Stahl David kick down a door, and 
I tried to have them put as much resistance on the door as possible because I figured if you were in an apartment building in New York City, you wouldn't be able to get to the door that easily because there's probably a lot of people trying to break down your door. And um, so he uh, he had to keep kicking, and we thought it was, you know, the, the, the harder and crazier he kicked, um, the harder that uh, I had David Wayne, our physical effects person, make it on him. And, um, and so he had to break down that door. He ripped the door frame off. Um, but this, this set, again, was the set that Martin built. This was our biggest set by far that was built from scratch. It was sort of the, the jewel of the whole thing. And I, th I think, you know, as happy I, as I am with, with everything we've done in the movie, I wish, and I, I suppose it has a lot to do with um, what your brain does when you're in a space like that, but I wish that we could have shot the space to make it feel as nauseous or nauseating as, um, as, as being in the space actually did. But um, I think that's a physical reaction that you have in the space. There's something about actually being tilted to the left but looking at these lines that look like you're straight up and it throws off your inner ear or something. It made it truly a frightening experience to walk through that space. And so the actors were actually experiencing that, which was great for their performances. It was, um, you know, fun to watch them do it. But um, I always wondered whether or not Mike and I had been able to find the way to capture uh, just how chaotic the space was. And, you know, the sound is an interesting thing in the movie, too, because I wanted to be able to use, because it's Handycam, I wanted to be able to, normally you have a boom operator, and he's, he's you know, we had boom operators, too, but we, we you normally have them point the mic at the actor who has the line. But because we were going to do improvs and because there was going to be overlapping, I need everybody to be on mic always. And so we had uh, multiple boom operators, and we had... Um, these lavalier mics, these chest mics that were on everybody. Each one had a mic, and that enabled them all to sort of overlap and do whatever it is that they felt that they would do or might say that would be in addition to the things that you had written, just little bits here and there, um, just to kind of keep with the intention of what he'd written but maybe mess it up a bit or do certain things. But there were... The interesting thing was that most of the dialogue that's in the movie is that, but the person who's behind the camera is TJ, and for a lot of his stuff, he came in afterwards, after these sequences were put together, and he could finally react to what was there, and he came up with a lot of sort of funny things, and I know that Drew's favorite thing that he came up with was um, that line about when Beth says, what is that? And he says, oh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a terrible thing, let's go, and then... There's a sequence that follows, which Drew then wrote, because we actually <laughs> made this sequence originally had the actors going back over to the other side, getting seeing the monster over here, which was so amazingly created by Tippett and Eric Levin and Chantal and all of our visual effects people. And then they basically ran down, ran down the stairs, got down to the street, and we showed it to a group of friends, and everybody had such a strong reaction to the parasites that they were like, well, first of all, weren't these parasites coming off of his skin, and shouldn't there be more of them? They'd be all over, wouldn't they? And we felt like somehow um, people had focused on the one thing that we kind of thought we could get away with, which was that there were no other parasites, and there would be. And so a friend of mine actually said, oh, my God, you got to have one more encounter with the parasites and it could be on the way back and so um there's this parasite scene that was shot in post here after the movie was done we went back and we shot a stairwell that was actually in an entirely different building um that's actually a paramount building this was actually shot on the lot and i talked to eric levin and to chantal and i said well what can you give me because at this point it's no longer about money it's about time um and what could they pull off in the amount of time that we had 
And they told me that if we did something of that level, where it was kind of contained like that, that they could do it. And Drew wrote that scene, and so that scene, he wrote the line about it's a terrible thing, and he added that line, which I love, where he says, um, where, she, where she asks again, what was that? And he says, it's something else also terrible, which I think is very funny. Now, this is another, you know, normally whenever people who weren't the operators were, were filming, it meant we were using the light cameras. Um, but in this scene in particular, Mike Bonvalin said, you know, this is a big, crazy run, and I, I'd love to have a run at it. And so this is Mike carrying the camera uh, and running like crazy after them up the street. And the fun here is that, again, there'd been a pipe explosion in New York, um, and we almost didn't have this location, but we had planned this location very, very carefully. And here, we're now actually in Downey. This isn't New York at all. All the plates you're seeing around it are New York, and so that's why it looks exactly like we are in this intersection in New York. And that's what we'd planned. We'd built this set specifically to match this intersection of 40th and Park. And at the after this steam pipe ex explosion, it looked like the city was not going to let us shoot there. And we had already shot this sequence with the helicopters and all of this stuff, and it suddenly seemed like maybe the climax of our movie was going to fall to pieces, and we definitely did not have the money or resources in order to go back and change what we'd filmed, and we didn't know what we were going to do. And finally, on the last night of our shoot, we found out that they had approved if we went down and shot with essentially 10, 15 people, which would be the actors, um, the operator of the camera, um, a couple of people to light it, and that was basically it. It was like the, it was as small a crew as we'd had since we went and shot that that subway stuff. And amazingly, we shot this sort of what looks like a grand scale sequence in that movie, which with about 10, 15 people. And the second that we stopped shooting, there was a huge storm, and it just started pouring. And we never would have been able to finish the movie. The movie would have been severely compromised. But somehow, um, the movie gods were on our side, and we were able to get that. And we were able to then use all of the photography of that spot to um, to put it all together to make it look like we were at 40th and Park, when in fact um, we were just doing that one run-up from 40th and Park, and the rest of it was our set at Downey. Um, and that was really uh, Kevin Blank's idea. And he, he actually also had this idea to shoot that shot, which was the monster sort of sneaking up right before they get in the copter. And this particular crash, I, I, I remember us filming it and thinking, you know, are we really going to, is this going to work at all? And, you know, we were there with, um, with, with Kevin and with Mike Ellis and um, with Eric. And we were, we were talking about the sequence, and, and I just kept thinking, ah, is this going to be cheesy? Is this going to be a disaster? But the thing that I kept saying is I knew that, that they had done, that um, Mike Ellis and Double Negative had actually done um, United 93. And I was so struck by the film, by, by what Paul Greengrass had done. I, th I think it's an incredible film. There's a lot of improvisation in that film. It feels very naturalistic, very real. And obviously, um, the storytelling is about a very real and painful event. And it was done in such an effective way. And the thing that haunted my dreams for weeks and months afterwards was the last shot of the movie, which obviously, in the context of what it was, was very haunting because it was a real event. But it was also effectively done um, by Double Negative the, the, when the plane actually starts to go down and pitch toward the ground. And I said to Mike, I said, look, no matter what we do, 
at the end of the day, I need that crash to feel like that great crash that you did for Paul Greengrass. And so we we figured out a way to do that, and they um, they really came through. That's one of my favorite effects that they did in the film. Um, I was very happy with the way it turned out. And I think also the thing that really helps in that scene is the sound, which um, was sort of initially inspired by the work that um, that Kevin Stitt had put in there because he'd done an amazing sort of temp track. But then the sound that Skywalker did for us, it just makes my stomach turn the, as you're approaching the ground hearing those turbines. Um, and this sequence here, this funny, this actually, this scene was actually shot in Central Park, but not Central Park that... Um, you're thinking, you're thinking of in New York. It's actually shot in a in a park called Central Park, um, I think out by Valencia, and then they this was all shot against blue screen back there, and then the background was replaced with actual stuff from Central Park to to um, to make this a bigger space. Um, but that, you know, that shot is several different shots. There was a shot that I had around my neck, and then we gave it to Chris Hayes, and he, and then suddenly T J came in, and we were in this spot. And then this shot here in particular, initially it was supposed to be, um, I would say this is, this is the moment that Drew Goddard fought for the most in the movie. And we almost cut it like three or four times. And one day he came to me and the thing that was always my litmus test for the movie, because I knew that I was interested in it feeling sort of realistic. And that was what was important to me. And so there was a kind of naturalism that I wanted and a sense of building dread. But Drew, on top of caring about character and all the things that we talked about, ultimately is also a huge monster movie fan. He, like J.J., that's what got them so excited about it in the beginning. And the thing that he said to me, I remember we were talking about with the visual effects people, and they're like, ah, oh, we don't know if we can do it or how silly it would be. And Drew was adamant. He came up to me and said, look, you don't understand. As a monster movie fan, not as a monster movie writer, but as a fan, if you are watching a movie in which you go through and you're following this experience, and then suddenly at the end, the person who's been filming the whole thing gets eaten, that that's just about the coolest thing you could do in a monster movie. And so I was like, okay, I heard that loud and clear. There was no way we were going to lose that. And we had prevised that sequence, and it was meant to be this sort of thing where the camera turned around and we got this fleeting glimpse because the camera was never supposed to get the monster too close because that was a budget level that we didn't think we could afford and that Tippett didn't think we could do. And then once we'd actually cut the movie together and put it together, J.J. came to me and he said, look, you know, the one thing that I would say is I have this idea, because it was supposed to be a very brief moment. HUD turns around, the camera swings up, you see a mouth coming down at you, suddenly you're inside and it's very visceral. But when we watched it with the previs cut in, because we actually hadn't done the visual effect yet, um, it was kind of fast and jarring and you didn't know what was going on. And it was JJ's idea to try and get a great look finally at the monster. And it was absolutely right, because you spent so much time sort of getting fleeting glimpses, and to suddenly be in this intimate contact with the monster was exactly what the movie needed. And so we went to Tippett, and Tippett, to their credit, they said, well, they were terrified, because they thought, well, we didn't have a texture mapped for that, you're not supposed to see it that closely. And then what we talked about, because that had been the aesthetic in the whole movie, was, hey, you can use all of the fact that we're shooting this in Handycam to your advantage. If the iris closes down, if it's backlit, if there's lens flares, all of which we tried to add throughout the whole movie to make it seem messy and real, then that's only going to make the shot seem more real and cooler. And so they, they did that, that great shot, and it, it turned out to be, I think, one of the most effective monster shots in the movie, um, and it was never really planned to be as sort of grand scale as it was. And that footage that was just shot there, that was also um, part of a... A reshoot. This is actually shot under Greystone Arch, 
Um, I'm sorry, not Greystone. Uh, this was actually shot under Grayshot Arch in, in Central Park um, in New York. Um, and that actually at one point was going to be the title of the movie. We were very excited that we found the name of these bridges and we thought Grayshot was a cool title. But then we realized after the whole sort of buildup of Cloverfield that um, people already knew the movie under one weird mysterious name, so why not stick with that instead of changing it to Grayshot? But in, in post, we ended up going back and shooting additional footage um, in a tiny 15-foot section of tunnel that Martin was able to build, and it cuts seamlessly with this footage here. And we were able to get a bit more from Rob relating directly to Beth there, and, and I think Odette gives some of the strongest stuff that she's done in the whole movie, this, this shot in particular. I think she's just terrific, and it's really harrowing. And, um, and so it was, it was fun to do. And, and this particular thing that's going on here with the sirens was actually an idea that came from Steven Spielberg, um, J.J. showed him the film just as we were finishing and we were mixing, and he said, you know, I think at the end you really want to know that the monster's going down, and he had this idea for a kind of countdown, and we sort of took that and played with it and said, well, what if, what if you start hearing over the radio the idea that um, when you hear the sirens, it means you're in the blast zone, and then when the sirens come in, you'll know that they're in trouble, and then we'll have the monster screaming bloody murder. And so it became this um, sort of different ending, um, which was really the same ending, but made better by, by Spielberg's idea, which was a, a really cool thing for me, just to have him look at the movie. And then here we are with basically what was the first shot um, that I remember shooting, um, which was actually on Coney, you know, at Coney Island with uh, Michael holding the camera in the spirit of what we were going to do. And actually behind Odette and Michael there are... Um, Mike Bonvalin and I and, and Nick, the, the uh, digital technician, and we're just hiding there looking at what they're filming. And that was kind of what the whole experience of the movie was like, just hiding and pretending we weren't there. This particular um, thing here, you know, one of the fun things about the movie, because we were going to actually um, see the aesthetic all the way through and... It was exciting for me as a director to have J.J. be so supportive of the idea of really seeing it out all the way through and that Paramount was completely fine with it too. I mean, it was so unusual that we would essentially make a movie with no score. And so there's no music in the movie other than source music that you hear um, either on a television or when it's playing at the party or, you know, we, we thought it was fun. It was actually uh, Kevin Stitt's idea to have some music playing in the building at the end. But then at the end... Um, originally, Kevin Stitt, when he first showed me the cut of the movie, had taken the music from Godzilla, this great score from the original Godzilla, and it was just great. And we sort of thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun to be able to do our own version of that? And, um, you know, J.J. and Brian obviously had a relationship with Michael Giacchino, and I had met him a few times, and I just I just love his work. I think he's amazing. I love the score that he did to The, to the Incredibles and to Ratatouille. I just think he's just incredibly talented and so it turned out that he is a huge monster movie fan and that he loved all of that Godzilla music and he relished the idea of basically writing us this I guess you consider it a song but it's really the Cloverfield overture at the end and when he did what he did I was just I couldn't have been more excited and so oddly felt that it was appropriate to the movie it's funny because you watch this movie with no music and then the music that comes in somehow feels like the music that you would have heard had it been the huge grand scale 
um, version of the movie shot in a traditional fashion, and it seemed so appropriate. It so captured the feeling of the experience that you'd just been through. And so I think we're all incredibly um, grateful for, for Michael for writing this for us. I just want to say that the movie was incredibly fun, but an incredibly grueling experience because for a movie that's supposed to take place all in one night, mostly on the streets, it meant that you had to shoot the movie mostly at night for most of those six, eight weeks. And so what this crew went through in making this movie and the way that they all sort of jumped into the spirit of doing things in this completely unconventional way, um, I, I cannot be more grateful for what they did and how they pulled it off. It's, it's just incredible. And the, the long, crazy nights and then finally going home and the sun coming up is a very strange feeling to have. And um, I just, I, I think that all of us, the producers as well, just really, really want to thank the crew for what an amazing experience they made this and how incredible they made the film. I just want to thank uh, thank you for for watching this and for um, being fans of the movie. You know, it's, it was such a strange experience to be making this movie um, and having that trailer that we made in prep come out and see all the interest that was building based on this mysterious trailer. And it was it was so exciting for us to see the kind of exciting. Um, speculation that people had. There was a creativity that was equal to what we were doing going on on the internet with everybody who was a fan of the trailer and trying to figure out exactly what it was all about and so many amazing theories. And so uh, I want to thank everybody on behalf of myself and the producers and Drew um, and Paramount and uh, and really everyone involved in the film for, for making uh, this tiny film get any attention whatsoever. I mean, we were a little handicam movie with um, with a cast of, of young, talented unknowns, and um, we were really, couldn't be more grateful. At the very end of the crawl, at the end of the, the movie, at the end of all this great music, um, I always thought it'd be really fun to have a kind of um, soundscape, sound montage. And um, I, I asked um, Doug Murray to put something together for it. Um, and he and, and, and Will and everybody at Skywalker sort of put this stuff together. And it was, it was very elaborate and was in a way uh, a piece of um, sound that echoed the kind of scope of the music and sort of echoed it and doubled it. And so then at the end, we listened to it and we thought, well, now it feels kind of like there's two scores. We have the kind of sound montage score and then we have all this 
amazing music that Giacchino wrote. And so at the end, we pared it way, way down. And there's just this little grace note at the end. Um, and it was just, you know, we, have, we, we even embedded a little message there, you know, for everybody to sort of um, hopefully solve and enjoy just, just for fun. And it was one of those things that we threw in just at the very, very last minute. But, um, but anyway, there's just a little touch there at the end that, that I think that uh, we all kind of enjoyed here at least. The thing about it is, in much the same spirit, you know, there was a, when we were making the trailer, um, we were really concerned that people know that this is a monster movie because we thought, well, what are they going to think this is? And so we wanted to make some reference. Um, and so we had a bunch of voices put in. That's Brian Burke's voice. You hear screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, uh, when the head of the Statue of Liberty comes down. And we also wanted to put in some voices who would refer to the thing being a creature as opposed to an incident. Um, and so we had a bunch of voices talking about, you know, oh, that sounds like an animal. What is that? And um, the very, very last thing we did was uh, it was very late at night, and it was I was there um, with JJ and with Brian, and we were there with the mixers on the stage, and my girlfriend was there, and we were all really tired. And I said, well, let me do one. I want to do one. And so I went up to the mic, and um, I did one that is basically me screaming in my high-pitched voice, um, I saw it, it's alive, it's huge, which then I came home one night um, and saw that after we were shooting, you know, because we were, the trailer came out in July uh, when Transformers came out, and we were only very early into the shooting then, so I started watching what's going on, on the internet, and one night I came home after a shoot, and of course it was early morning because we were shooting nights, and I saw this spectral analysis of what I had said. And I was shocked. I was like, what is this? They're analyzing my voice? What's happening here? And apparently I speak rather quickly. And what was um, It's Alive, It's Huge came out as It's a Lion, It's Huge. And it started all this Voltron, giant robot lion um, speculation that that's what the movie was about. And so when we were mixing the movie here at the end and we had the little sound montage that um, Skywalker did, um, I thought it would be fun to do just one last little touch. So there's there's a little snippet of my voice kind of woven in there in a hopefully somewhat hidden way, but it was sort of a, to echo the experience of what happened on the trailer. One of the things that excited us the most was the idea that we were making this film for Paramount and that they were letting us essentially go out and make what was a very independently sort of approached movie with, you know, handheld cameras, some of which were literally handy cams, and it was an experience a lot like making films when we were kids and we were filming with our 8mm cameras, and that was an incredibly exciting experience and one that is very rare to think that the studio was as supportive as they were of us doing whatever we wanted in terms of how we would shoot it. It was an amazing experience. 